Welcome to Attached, a podcast about the loved ones we're attached to and the good, the bad, and the ugly advice about those relationships that maybe we shouldn't be so attached to. We here at Attached want to share ways to enhance your relationships and debunk bad relationship advice using science. I'm Dr. I'm Dr. Patricia Robertson out of the University of Tennessee College of Nursing and the Department of Psychology with a PhD in Child and Family Studies. I am Dr. Jacob Bird Priest. I <laughs> bird. Throwing that bird in. I mean, you gotta you gotta keep it real, right? <laughs> I have a PhD in marriage and family therapy, and I'm an assistant professor of couple and family therapy and psychiatry at the University of Iowa. And I'm Sarah Woods out of Dallas, Texas. I have a PhD in marriage and family therapy, and I'm currently uh, working as a behavioral scientist in family medicine. This episode, we're going to talk about some current events in pop culture. We want to air some specific opinions about. I'm sure Jacob has some gems lined up for us, maybe The Bachelor if we're lucky. Um, And also, we have some opinions about the latest debate. We will also break down the academic article, Intensive Mothers, Cautionary Tale Fathers, Adult Children's Perceptions of Parental Influence on Health by Dr. Kissling. And last but not least, we're going to break down some sage words of advice, specifically for new parents this time. But before we get to all of that, how's everybody doing this week? Jacob? Well, so today... I had so I live in a house that was built in 1919, so it's a hundred years old. And I'm pretty sure that the uh, bathroom we one of the bathrooms we have here was added in like 1960 because it's pink. It's actually pretty cool. But the fluorescent cool. light, the fluorescent light mm. went out, and so I called the electrician. He was like, "Oh." Oh, you could totally change that. Like, okay. <laughs> so this morning, so I had Quick a Quick question. Do you have any electrician experience or anything like that, Jacob? Well, to be to be fair, I have changed like five or six light fixtures in this house. Oh, okay, okay. Um, don't ever install a ceiling fan on your own. It's the worst. It took us like four <laughs> hours. Anyway, but this took me close to that too. Oh. So this there was a part, it's called the ballast, where that's what connects the electrical wiring in your house to the fluorescent light. Oh, dear. Oh, it took me forever. And oh, like I started working on it this morning <laughs> and then I had to stop because I had to go to the dentist. I came back. I had to go to Home Depot to get certain parts. And then it took me three hours to fix it. I was very frustrated. Oh, my God. <laughs> also, today's a Tuesday, right? <laughs> like a work day. <laughs> Just yeah. <laughs> want to be clear. We're recording on a Tuesday. I was in my office all day long, but that's that, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, that's that sweet, sweet academic life. <laughs> I had I Tuesdays are my work from home days because yeah, sure. I had to. I was on campus from eight thirty to eight thirty yesterday. Mm. No, that's fair. That's fair. Let's just hope your department head doesn't listen to this. You'll be fine. Uh, like they like me. I get my I get my shit done, so sure, it's all sure right. <laughs> At the dentist. At the dentist. <laughs> Woods, what's up with you this week? Not much. I'm actually in Chicago 
this week or a conference. Windy City. Is that what they call it? I didn't, I don't actually know. I've been here once before also for a conference. So I have not ever seen that much of the city, although what I've seen, I really like. I really like it a lot. It's super walkable. There's tons of good places to eat. Last time I was also here for a conference, but I made room to see Hamilton. And what? I, it's on my to-do list again this week to sneak out one evening and get like maybe a single rider tickets for Hamilton because they're a lot less expensive when you go by yourself. It's just oh, me. I'll just take those sweet, cheap tickets that nobody else wants because I'm sitting amongst strangers. <laughs> <laughs> that would be awesome, though, if you got those tickets. Yeah, I agree. So yeah, it'll, love- be a, it'll be a good week. Lots of, it's a conference specific to people who do my job in family medicine. Oh, cool. So there'll be some good learning. and Absolutely. Sounds amazing. Yeah. So this week, I well, this weekend, I went with one of my uh, good friends up to New York. Uh-huh. New York City. So much fun. Uh, we got to go see Jimmy Fallon. We got to see the Yay. recording of Jimmy Fallon. It was so much fun. I didn't think it would happen. And like, even once we were through and we had the tickets and the wristband, we were like, are we still, does this mean we made it? Like, it was just so ambiguous, the whole entire process of like standing in line and when you need to be. And even the ticket they got, they gave us, we got to sit in the peacock room waiting to go up to the show. It's cool. the ticket. This does not guarantee entry into see the show. So we we're like, oh my gosh, does this mean we're not in or are we in? Or it was so confusing. But then we finally wow. went in and it was amazing. Oh, that's awesome. You know, at the end where he gives high fives into the crowd. Mm-hmm. Did you get a high five? I got a high five. You guys, oh. his hand is so soft. <laughs> <laughs> Like, I am an academic for a living, so basically I type. Uh, His hands are way softer than mine. They must be, like, soaking milk. I'm not sure what's happening, but it was remarkable. You weren't scared to give him a high five. You weren't like, "Ah, I have a phobia of famous people. So, (laughs) like, what you just described, I'm having, like, a lot of anxiety. Really? (laughs) I mean, you just stick your hand up. Everybody's doing it. He doesn't, like, look at you in the eyes. And Would say get my you hand. high five. Hope I be trading that aisle seat so fast. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Anyway, it sounds like we all had a fantastic uh, last couple of weeks. You guys ready to get started? Woo. Let's do it. All righty. Our lives and relationships are impacted by things in our surroundings. We know this whether that's locally, nationally, or, or culturally. So for the first segment, we like to take a moment to highlight current events in pop culture that may influence people's lives and how they view relationships. So, Jacob, what do you have for us? So, today, tonight, tonight, tonight. this very night, was the season finale of Bachelor in Paradise. <gasps> so, <laughs> I'm actually going to jump back, though, a little bit and not talk about the finale, so there's no spoilers tonight. Okay. But... Good call. Hopefully you're caught up like at least the last week. So I want to talk about two. Well, actually, I'm going to talk about three people. The first one's name is Kaylin, and she was on Colton's season of The Bachelor. Um, the next Sarah, one, we might need another diagram. <laughs> <laughs> the next one's name is Dean. He was on Rachel's season of The Bachelorette. And the third person, Sarah and I both know, her name is Amber Benham. 
and she is a researcher and <laughs> professor in the program, a couple of family therapy program at Kansas State. Don't worry, it's all going to come together. <laughs> oh, I know because of her research. Exactly, right? So Amber studies what she calls cyclical couples. In other words, those couples that tend to get together, break up, then get back together again, break up, then get back together again and break up. So throughout Bachelor in Paradise, well, the beginning of Bachelor in Paradise, Kaylin and Dean have this magical, romantic relationship on the beach. Everything seems to be going great. It's uh, They seem to be falling in love. And on Kaylin's birthday, which happens during Bachelor in Paradise, Dean sets up all this stuff for her to make it a special day. And at that night, there's a rose ceremony. I forgot who gives the rose to who, but I'm pretty sure Kaylin gave the rose to Dean to say, thank you for making my birthday so special and wonderful. And then after the rose ceremony, Dean looks at her and says, hey, Kaylin, can we talk? What? Which, if you watch BIP, you know that's never a good thing. What's BIP? Bachelor in Paradise. Bachelor oh. Paradise. He right. gave it an acronym. <laughs> oh, my goodness. The, uh, the show you're talking about. Um, anyway, so he pulls her aside and he says, hey, I don't think I, I can give you what you need. I don't think I'm ready for a long-term commitment. I'm out of here. So peace. He leaves. Anyway, Kaylin is really sad and heartbroken. But this new dude, Connor, who's a total bro. Like, do you guys remember um, Ryan Lochte? Yes, the swimmer. The swimmer? Yeah. Well, I was like, you know, I was like, like, oh, bro, chaw. Yeah, that's Connor. <laughs> that's really, really how Connor is. Connor is the Bachelor in Paradise version of Ryan Lochte. Anyway, so they <laughs> kind of start to have a, ro- a romantic relationship. And then all of a sudden, a few weeks later, guess who shows back up? Ew. Dean. Dean. What? Dean. So he comes back, but then he says, so he's there and he's like, Kaylin, I really messed up. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done this. Of course. But because I left Bachelor in Paradise, I can't stay here. So if you want to be with me, you have to leave right now. What does she so, do? Well, wait. So now let's bring Amber Venom into this discussion. Let's do it. Amber. So Amber. Uh, I have Amber on the call right now. No, I'm just kidding. I don't. <laughs> we should. We should bring her on. Amber studies, as I mentioned earlier, cyclical relationships or this idea that people tend to, certain relationships, people tend to get together, break up, get together, break up, get together, break up, and that pattern continues. What she's found is probably not surprising, but cyclical relationships don't tend to result in good relationships. People who break up, get back together, they don't see these changes, right? Sometimes when you get back together with someone, they'll say, well, I'm going to be different. This is going to be different. We're going to do it better this time. Research doesn't tend to bear that out. So what does Kaylin do? What does she do? She goes with W-D-K-D. No, she, it's a C. Ah, uh, of course it is. But she goes with him. So she leaves Bachelor <gasps> in Paradise to go with them. So if we pay attention, and if you follow any of the people on Instagram, Kaylin or Dean, and we um, don't. which you probably, well, I mean, I'm not saying that you do, but you should. Anyway, my guess is if this really is this type of cyclical relationship that Dean and Kaylin are going to get stuck in, you know, a month or so from now, they'll probably break up. And then a few months from now, they'll probably get back together. Right. 
they'll do this over and over, each time promising to be a little bit different, but they won't. So the moral of the story, if you broke up with someone and they come back to you and say, hey, we should get back together, you should remember, oh, I should go read what Amber Venom has to say about that and then probably not get back together with that person. Right. You know, but cyclical means more than one. So maybe you get back together, but then if it happens again, then you know definitely it's a cyclical relationship. Well, that's fair. That's fair. So we'll see. We'll see. Time will tell. Interesting. We'll keep us posted on on, on that Dean situation. I will. I will. Yeah. <laughs> like you had to prompt him. <laughs> <laughs> please, I'm begging you, Jacob. Please, tell me more. Keep me posted. I mean, they announced a new Bachelor tonight. I don't know if any of y'all are interested. Oh, but that's come on. I'm just saying. I mean, why not? It's Peter the pilot. Fun. Peter the pilot is going to be the next Bachelor. It's a part of pop culture that I have never, like, experienced and so it's just i don't really understand it um but you're very into it and you are very successful at turning it into something that actually makes sense and that is really relevant and so i'm honestly more impressed i agree uh i never need to watch it uh you've turned it into more here I'm sure it's actually happening on television. 100%. I feel like at this point, Sarah, if we watch it, we'll just be disappointed. So <laughs> really let's point. just not yeah. watch it. <laughs> good idea. <laughs> um, so switching gears a little bit, Jacob, I had something I wanted to add, if that's okay, add into your section. Oh, of course. Awesome. So I was watching the Democratic debate last week or so, whenever it, it aired, and something popped out at me. Uh, Vice President Biden made a comment about the word gap. And I have the, the quote. It's a little meandery, but I'll go ahead and, and read it nevertheless. Uh, Vice President Biden said, play the radio, make sure the television, excuse me, make sure you have a record player on at night. The Make sure the kids hear words. A kid coming from a very poor school, I mean, a very poor background, will hear four million words fewer spoken by the time they get there. So that quote was specifically referencing this research about the word gap. And I wanted to kind of walk you guys through that research in particular and why uh, him quoting it bothered me so much and kind of got my dander up when he when he quoted it. And it's a very frequent quote, right? So President Barack Obama used it. Hillary Clinton uses it a lot. Um, but a lot of politicians and policymakers fail to go back and, and read the research and specifically the uh, more current research. Mm. So that word gap is actually based on a 1995 article by Betty Hart and Todd Risley. Betty Hart and, Tom, and Todd Risley found that a typical child whose parents are highly educated and are working professional is exposed to r- roughly about 1,500 more words per hour than a typical child who is on welfare. And that's where they round up to 4 million. So basically what Hart and Risley did was they observed children in the home who were of middle class and children in the home who had welfare supplements and compared the number of words that their biological parents spoke to them. So there are many problems with this research. One, it really only is words spoken directly at the child and not necessarily overheard by the child. And it's also only the biological parents of the child. So that was in 1995. The study was replicated much more recently by Dr. Sperry. 
And uh, Dr. Sperry included all adults surrounding the child and even words that the child could overhear and had a number of different groups looking at. But in terms of socioeconomic status, when including all of the words the child could hear, not just the biological parents, there was really no difference in, in, in word gap. So that means that there's a huge problem with the original methodology, really only focusing on this stereotypical view of what a family is, right? So only the biological parent could ever talk to the children or child and influence the child. But we know that across many different family types, that certainly isn't true at all. And when the study actually takes that into account, he found that that word gap was not true at all. Okay, so research isn't true. That's not a big deal. But in this case, it is particularly problematic because that first 1995 study was hugely sensationalized. It was all in the media and all of these policymakers just took this word gap and ran with it. They changed the way social workers uh, monitored mothers. They changed all of these. They included all of these interventions. Um, even as recently as Barack Obama um, cited the word gap and had policies driven by, by this word gap. Further, and, and really most importantly, in my opinion, these original findings and all of these policymakers' implementations of this research really is putting blame on the poor parents. They were blamed for not talking enough, um, as if talking was a cause for this school readiness. But in reality, what we know is that the gaps in school readiness is a systemic issue caused by the stress of living in poverty. Lower income parents having to work multiple jobs to make ends meet, anxiety over paying the bills and ensuring the children are fed. So as a research field and people in general, we have to make sure our policymakers aren't looking for these quick fixes like the word, like word gaps. We have to fix these larger systemic issues if we want to improve school readiness. Yeah, I watched the debate as well. And when Vice President Biden said this, I think I had a similar reaction. And if I remember correctly, the context of this oh. was about um, racism in the United States. Yeah, the legacy of, of slavery, to be exact. Mm -hmm. And then he jumps to school readiness. And also that was another problem with all of this research is they kept on housing it as low income, but uh, right. how it was implemented was merely a proxy for African-American and Latinx families. So, and I think particularly for this quote of this word gap is just the power of research and when it's harnessed by policymakers and extrapolated to such a degree without considering the context of which the context and the real cause of school readiness, which is the stress caused by poverty, these quick fixes of like talking a certain number, even though it turned out not to be true at all, will just perpetuate, will never really fix any problems if you don't mm -hmm. address the underlying systemic issues. And this is just yeah. a perfect example of just targeting one little thing based on research just falls apart so quickly. Yeah. Do you think that, um, I mean, because we're we're doing or having these conversations, attempting to have these conversations on this podcast about um, connecting research to people who would not necessarily otherwise be exposed to research, especially mm. in terms of the things that people often find most important in their lives, their family relationships. Um, but I'm not sure that researchers do a very good job of connecting their ivory tower findings to the average citizen and 
I think it's another step entirely to be thinking about how to convey research and connect it to policymakers. That's true. Um, I don't know anything about this uh, Dr. Sperry who's done this replication study or any of the other school readiness research that has probably surrounded what you're talking about. But I wonder how those researchers or the people that we talk about whose work looks at parent-child relationships and couples relationships and family-based interventions that are connect what they do and what they study to policy. I also, I also just am wondering or reacting as you're talking about that to whether researchers do a very good job of talking about what they do very well and connecting it to this kind of stuff. I, I agree with you. And I don't think that they do it well. And I think that one of the many goals of this podcast is to stick, take a step in that direction to kind of de-glamorize or demystify the process of research and point out that there are sometimes flaws in it, um, but within that there are pieces of information that also can be gleaned, hopefully to improve the lives of people, right? Because what's the point of doing research if you're not attempting to make people's lives better? Right. Agreed. Moving on. Speak of the devil. <laughs> Tough transition. <laughs> now we're ready to move to academic deep dive segment. Today we're going to talk about a new paper from sociologists Alexandra Kissling and Corinne Rezek called Intensive Mothers, Cautionary Tale Fathers, Adult Children's Perceptions of Parental Influence on Health. This piece was just published in the Journal of Family Issues, and the link to this article will post in the description of this episode. So just a little bit of background before Sarah takes us away, off, off and away into a wonderful land of research. So parents affect children's health, and we've long known this to be the case. Beginning in early childhood and adolescence, and we know that this effect goes long into adulthood. However, we know far less about how parents affect their adult children's health, even though adults in middle life often remain very close to their parents, whether or not those relationships are positive or negative. And people often experience their first health problems between the age of 40 and 60. So relationships with their parents may protect against the severity of these health issues or may make these health problems even worse, again, depending on the quality of that relationship. Also, in-laws likely affect, isn't this true, likely affect the health of adults in midlife, but little research explores the effect of these relationships or how in-laws impact us generally. So lastly, the authors suggest that because gender affects how we have relationships within our parents and our in-laws, this may also affect how we perceive these relationships and how we perceive them affecting our health. For example, because mothers tend to provide more support to adult children than fathers, a daughter and possibly gay sons provide more support than straight sons to their older parents and in-laws. The authors suggest that daughter's health at midlife may be more affected as they may receive more support and give more support, but have mixed feelings about both, especially in regards to the in-laws. So that was a little bit of background. So Sarah, how did these authors decide to explore how parents affect children's health? And that in-laws piece is really, really curious to me. Yeah, uh, I also thought it was really curious because there is not a lot of research, as you just described, that looks specifically at in-laws. I mean, if we're talking, uh, if we're prioritizing understanding how parents affect kids' health, 
Right. Uh, in childhood and adolescence, we definitely know less about how parents affect their adult children's health, but we know even less about parents-in-law um, and how it connects to adult children's health. So I also thought that was pretty curious going in. Um, so these authors used qualitative interviews. And as Patricia just described, there is an increasing amount of research that looks at how the quality of relationships between adult children and their parents affects health. Um, we know some about how this operates um, and that this seems to be true, whether the relationships are positive and supportive and warm or critical and strained and hostile, although evidence seems to suggest that negative parent-child relationships have stronger effects on health and that those effects are obviously detrimental. And so, as Patricia also described, these researchers were interested in exploring gender and the in-law relationships. And so to capture how adult children in midlife between about age 40 to 60 think their relationships with their parents and in-laws affect their health, the authors interviewed married partners of 45 couples. So the 45 couples, wow. 90 adult children. Yeah, it's a lot of interviews. Um, it must have been just a coding dream. Um, they had 15 gay couples, 15 lesbian couples, 15 heterosexual couples. And this, all of these participants were legally married and in Massachusetts. So they specifically chose Massachusetts because, um, marriage equality was passed many years before a lot of other states got on board. So the data that, or the participants that they recruited were through the state of Massachusetts vital records between about 2004 to 2012. Oh. Okay. And invitations out by mail and then look to find other people that were connected to those initial people. So they analyzed interviews from both of the spouses to get more information and they found three really important themes that they highlight. So the first are that parents and in-laws enhance adult children's health through support provided when the adult child has an illness or an injury. Oh, I see. These This kind of support takes three forms that they highlight. Physical support, which is like the hands-on caregiving. So if I have just had surgery, my mom knows I can't get up from the couch. She's going to offer to literally go to the refrigerator and get me food. She's going to literally get me medical supplies. She's going to provide that hands-on caregiving. Um <laughs> That was intended to be a hypothetical example. And also my mother would do that. (laughs) (laughs) The second area is instrumental, meaning this is that um, hands-on. The example that they really pulled out from their interviews was child care. So this Uh, is really very key in terms of not only providing hands-on care for grandchildren, but also relieving these adult children from having to disrupt their own schedules to do some of that caretaking. And then the third area of support is financial, which is some of that's direct, but also some of that comes out of the fact that if they're providing, for example, childcare or direct physical caregiving, then that's somebody I don't have to hire to do either of those things. Uh, And so they did find a gender effect here that almost exclusively this was talked about in terms of mothers providing this kind of support. Interesting. So, and related, they also found another sub-theme here that participants believe that their parents and in-laws would be there to provide support if they needed it, like in anticipation of whether or not they might get yeah. sick. They thought that their parents, most of them thought that their parents would be there. And although they described that the mothers were doing the hands-on caretaking and providing that support in the case of actual illness or injury, in the hypothetical anticipated event of maybe needing support in the future, they identified that both moms and dads would do this. Oh. 
is fascinating to me. Uh, the second theme that they found was that uh, parents enhance health through future health expectations. And this is more of a negative process, meaning the health outcomes are benefited, but it's because of witnessing something like serious illness or death, which encourages oh. adult children to plan for the future but especially that parents' own health can serve as a cautionary tale, which is where you get the title of this article, yeah. that their own health, when it's bad, it serves as a warning. So a process of don't do as they did because it had really bad outcomes. And there was a gender effect here too, so that this was especially true in regards to father's health. Mm. So father's health, was when it was negative and could really impact these adult children's health because it really was serving as a really big red flag. I have to take better care of myself or I know what addiction looks like or uh, right. they had a really bad heart attack. And so I really need to watch what I eat and really make sure that I never smoke and et cetera, et cetera. Um, right. And I've heard that in my own research with just anecdotally patients saying, oh, yeah. well, my mom has diabetes real bad. And yes. I don't want to get that. So I have to eat better. Yep. Yeah. I hear it all the time. What, what is interesting too, is that there's, these are qualitative interviews, right? So none of this is, is quantitative mathematical research. Right, statistics is, or stuff like that. That's right. So we don't actually know how this translates. These are all people's perceptions of how their parents and in right. health. So I hear this all the time too, in primary care that I have diabetes and so does about six other people in my family that I can immediately identify. This one had their legs amputated. This one died. This one has other serious health health complications. This one has vision loss, et cetera, et cetera. I should take better care of my health because I know all of that. It does not necessarily translate into different health behaviors. I think when the rubber hits the road, but oh, I don't know in in these researchers sample, whether or not that was the case in my own experience. Um, and my sample looks very different than their sample. It can serve as a cautionary tale, but it doesn't always translate into better health behavior. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so the final theme that they found is that there are negative effects on adult children's health when parents have their own serious health needs, which makes sense, right? That if I am worried about my parents' health, that can be very stressful for me. That has a negative effect on my mental health. And also I'm potentially less likely to take care of myself. So um, for the for people in their sample, they might have been less able to recover from an illness or a surgery and also less able to take care of their own health and wellness because it's hard to take care of yourself when your parents are sick and Absolutely. are getting worse, right? And, and we stress, know some of that from, oh, sorry, go ahead. And stress just exacerbates that too, yep. any yep. symptomology so that you have. And we know some of that from the caregiving literature that we have quantitative research that supports us that when I'm caregiving right. for a parent with serious health needs like dementia or stroke or et cetera, it can really affect my mental and physical health for a lot of reasons, stress being one of them and not taking care of myself being the other. And those two things are certainly combined. So overall, they did find that in-laws were important. They were definitely factored into how people describe that parents affect their health. And gender did matter in regards to the gender of the parent, but not the gender of the adult child. So moms, moms and mothers-in-law were described as having positive effects on health so that they were perceived to do most of the supporting, especially that physical and instrumental support. And for mothers-in-law, they provided that same support. But what the author suggested they were finding in these interviews is that the request to get the help from those mothers-in-law came from the spouse, meaning people were saying, my mother-in-law provides that support when one of us is uh. sick. 
but I have to ask my mother-in-law to step in and help my spouse because they're not asking for themselves. And I'm not exactly sure based on how they wrote that up, how that looked, if that process itself was a little bit gendered, but I did think that was interesting. And so they tie this into this theme that's been present elsewhere in the literature about intensive mothering, that there's this really high level of care and support that moms provide for their kids in order to promote all of these positive outcomes. And they really become kind of the touch point for launching their kid in all these positive directions. And that it they're describing, they're connecting this process to that intensive mothering piece, that it looks like it possibly could continue for children in midlife, which is positive, but but also a perception and also might be really unique to this white affluent sample that they had from Mexico. Yeah, because that also assumes that the, the mother has the financial security to yep. drop everything and, and right. be there for a longer period of time, because I Absolutely. assume we don't know how close the the mother and father actually live. That's right. Nope. Nope. Uh, I think that's definitely one possibility. I think it's also possible that if they have those kinds of resources to be able to be providing the support, it's possible that the adult children don't have to provide as much support. So even though that third theme was about worrying about their parents compounding Mm. healthy they themselves might be more able to hire, you know, nursing support, home health aides, other kinds of childcare, et cetera. And that just might be culturally what this looks like in terms of this sample that's regionally specific and financially specific, that this is the kind of relationships that they have. So I don't know what this looks like for other samples and the authors don't either. So gender matters in terms of moms being more positive and health promoting and then fathers and fathers-in-law provided negative health examples, which had the potential to have positive health outcomes for these adult children. But I also thought was kind of sad. It's really, uh, I just keep on, it just keeps on reminding me, like the findings are just this stereotypical 50s division of household labor. um, And it's playing out in, in this way. And I can't help but think, and maybe there's a part of me that hopes that this is a generational thing, that in another generation, it might look different and potentially less gendered in in some way. But then again, I could be completely wrong. But it's fascinating to me how gendered it is. Well, I thought... One th- I mean, this sample was 40 to 60 years old, correct? Yeah. So if you think about their parents, the right. generation their parents grew in could potentially be that more traditional, what we exactly. say is traditional, but division of labor. And so setting that aside, because I think, Sarah, you did a really awesome job talking about all the caveats in that. I What I appreciate about this article is that it shows that families matter to health, right? Yeah. So typically, I mean, we talk about this in research all the time. Whenever we're thinking of health, we're thinking about parents and young kids. Right. Or adult relationships, it's your romantic partner. But really, families are complex and include in-laws, children, spouses, uncles, aunts, siblings, all this. And I think that the dynamic processes that we see in families don't get discussed, and especially how that links to our health. You know, we talk about this on this podcast frequently that we've kind of, and research does this too, right? We have this assumption that our partner is the most important person in our lives and should, you know, do everything for us that we need emotionally, physically, health, all that, all that stuff. But here it's showing that, hey, if there's an illness in the family, we're going to rely on this extended support network. And this extended support network is going to have an influence on our lives and our health. And if, 
And if we as researchers and as just people existing in families don't pay attention to those relationships and the quality and the time and effort we put into those relationships, yeah. we could you really that could be detrimental to our health. Right. Especially if that those parents are coming into town when you're when you're sick and that relationship is strained, that might help, but it also could exacerbate the situation too. Well, Mm -hmm. and it's not going in the other direction either, meaning they interviewed both partners of this couple, couple, but they didn't interview their mothers and mothers-in-law or fathers and fathers-in-law to also kind of expand that perspective. Right. Right. So they're, they're talking with these adult children about how does your parent, how do your parents affect your health? And they're saying, oh, they really support us when they're sick, but they're not capturing the perspective of that mom, for example, who's coming in and doing the childcare for those grandparents about how does doing that support piece affect your health? Cause mm-hmm. you're 85. Right. <laughs> you're at, uh, they're, I mean, potentially 20, 30 years older than the participants here. And so it would be also interesting to see the reverse, especially in terms of this generational, possible generational difference. I don't know that other research suggests that there's, I don't know how much research is, and this is a different conversation for a different podcast, but I don't know how much research is demonstrating that there is a lot of change in equality in, in these relationships over time. I think there's some differences, but I'm not, I'm not sure how overwhelming that is. But so I did think it was interesting. And I agree with you, Jacob, that there's definitely more to be exploring here, but definitely an interesting way to capture what we here at Attach know is possible and probable is that our families affect us and our health far into adulthood. And that's not something that stops at age 18 because I become an adult. Right. You become an adult, you're 18, your family no longer is influential. (laughs) Not true. See ya. (laughs) All right. So moving on, finally, time for good or bad advice, where we talk about the pervasive relationship advice, advice about friends, families, and romantic partners. Did your grandparents have a saying about love and marriage? Did your parents give you advice about friendships or romantic relationships? Did you have a friend or romantic partner who said something about love and family that you thought was odd? Or maybe it struck you as poignant. This is the section of the show where we talk about that advice and decide if it was good or bad. That's the audience (laughs) saying that. As always, if you have heard or read some advice you want us to talk about, please send it in. We'd love to talk about it. You can leave us a message at 865-235-1374. Email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet us at attachedpodcast or visit our website, attachedpodcast.com. You can email us also at the contact link, which is at the bottom of our website. In fact, while you're at it, while you're on those worldwide webs doing all of that send-in of things, please like and subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Twitter, because why not, you know? So today, we're going to talk about advice given to new parents. It was an article written in the Chicago Tribune, and we'll attach the link to this article in the description of the episode. So I will read the piece of advice and have our amazingly intelligent marriage and family therapist tell us if they think it's good or bad advice. What do you guys think? Can I just have one caveat before we jump in here? Of course. I, I am not a parent. That's so, true. So uh, everything I say is not coming from experience. And right. hopefully, 
So I'm just throwing that out there. So, but remember, we are debunking or substantiating relationship advice based on science. That's true. <laughs> Fair. But that I also, also but I was gonna say, like the way we interpret and think about the findings that are in science is based on our personal experience. And I don't have any personal experience with being a parent. Just throwing that out there. Fair, fair point. There's there's that there's that caveat. Anything uh, Jacob says, send him a tweet about it uh, <laughs> at a podcast and really go to town critiquing what he says. That would be really, I, I think, the point of this podcast is really go after Jacob this episode. I was going to also add a caveat of even though you've introduced us as marriage family therapists, it's not my role specific to the listeners of this episode. I am not serving their family therapist. <laughs> <laughs> right, we're just debunking advice okay okay good good good. i mean if they want me to be their therapist they can move to iowa oh my god you have my private practice and, and i'll wow. work with y'all that you gotta... is a commitment jacob inviting stalkers the new term for up here to attach <laughs> jacob really wants those dollar dollar bills y'all <laughs> could you imagine if somebody showed up i heard you on a podcast I was really looking for somebody and I couldn't find them in my state. I'm so glad you so I'm available. I moved to your state. <laughs> I heard Iowa City was. Oh. You guys ready? Yeah, let's do After it. all of those caveats? <laughs> yes. Advice number one take time for yourself before the baby arrives. Make plans with friends, have a manicure, see a movie. These are all things that you could do. Having a baby is the best thing that will ever happen to you, but your life will change. And some of the things you are used to doing every day or even every week simply won't happen anymore because you're now responsible for this little being. So, <laughs> so take time for yourself before use, the baby arrives. Well, so in that quote, they're saying she is saying this uh, Lindsay Pinchuk. I don't know if I'm saying that last name right that having a baby is the best thing that will ever happen to you. But we know from research that when partners introduce a child into their relationship, I knew their marriage tends to decline. I so knew. if something is the best thing that ever happens to you, it probably wouldn't result in a decline. So I'm not saying that having kids is bad. I, myself, and my partner, we would like to have children one day. But what I am saying is to sell the idea of I having agree. the best thing that ever happened to you is problematic on multiple levels. So also the what's undergirding that is you're not going to have time for anything else. Your life is going to completely change. You are not going to be able to ever see your friends again. You're never going to be able to do anything again. And that's just not true. Many parents, hopefully most parents, I don't know why I said many, uh, <laughs> still have the same friends. They maintain friendships. They go out. There's this wonderful thing called a babysitter or uh, preschool that you can send kids to these days. It's just a, it's just a horrible uh, myth that your life, you're only going to ever be with this one child and never do anything ever again. Sarah, you are dying over there. What's happening? <laughs> oh my God, it took so many dark turns. I really like it. <laughs> um, <laughs> so 
other original question was the advice take time for yourself before the baby arrives <laughs> y'all took it further which is good here to test we really want to explore all of these angles uh i would say though based on what you all said about <laughs> the child will absorb some amount of your life and also will not be the best thing that happened to you in every area of your life, I would then extrapolate. I feel comfortable extrapolating to it's good advice to take time for yourself before a baby arrives. <laughs> yeah, I, I, would, I also would expand it to say, take time for your uh, welcoming a child into a relationship, take time for the relationship before the baby arrives, but also take time for yourself and that relationship after the baby arrives, which right. is I think Trish is getting at. That um, your life doesn't need to be totally upside down, but it, I mean, I think often it will look upside down for at least a while and being really intentional about asking for help, which can be very hard for new parents. Um, if you have the ability to ask for help and that comes with a little bit of privilege, that idea, but asking for help and carving out a little bit of time intentionally can potentially buffer some of that steep decline Dr. Priest is referencing for relationship satisfaction. Well, I should also point out that there is some evidence to suggest that people who have high relationship satisfaction tend like, so if you look at the overall trend, most people like the average is that most people will see a dip in relationship satisfaction, but there are certain groups that have different trajectories, right? There are groups that tend to maintain high levels of satisfaction. There are people that have, more volatile type of relationships, less satisfied, which tend to see a steeper decline, right? There you go. Uh, some people sometimes take the advice of like, oh, if my relationship's go not going well, well, if we have a baby, we'll come together and things will be better. Bad advice. Ooh, bad. Bad, bad. So bad. Really Toxic. Bad. Toxic advice. So it's, Ooh, I'm not saying that having a baby is going to totally tank your relationship, because there are a significant portion of people that have a good, stable, solid, connected relationship, and that maintains even after the birth. Right. So I'm just case in it's point. Not <laughs> it's not what. It's not the best thing that's ever going to happen to you. Oh, fair, fair point. Fair point. So take time for yourself before the baby arrives. Jacob, good advice or bad advice? Good advice. Good advice. Sarah. <laughs> yes. Definitely very reasonable good advice. I agree. However, I'm not going to however, it. I already did that tangent. Okay. <laughs> Number two, it's hard to mess up. There are many shades of gray when it comes to things like how to get a baby to sleep, to eat, and to develop in the best way possible. So there are a lot of different ways to do it, and they're saying it's hard to mess up. What do you guys think? So my thought is is a couple of things, right? So they're talking about certain things are hard to mess up, right? Getting the baby to sleep, getting the baby to eat, getting them to develop. Uh, you know, there is a lot of, I think, having the flexibility of not like, oh, if we don't follow this certain book and follow these certain rules is really rewarding, you know, is it allows parents to think and have flexibility in raising their kids. I also think that the emotional connection we build with kids continues across the life course, right? And so there are times that you can change that and intervene, but you can also mess up 
right? We know that adverse childhood experiences or those are types of experiences that are uh, can be considered, you know, abuse or violence in the home, chaotic homes. Those are associated with uh, serious mental and physical illnesses later on in adulthood and throughout childhood and adolescence. So sure, there's a lot of different pathways. And just because you do something, and I'm showing quotation marks for those of you listening, wrong, doesn't mean that you're going to mess up your kid forever. But also there can be those intense emotional experiences if those are present at a home that can, can result in really negative outcomes for kids. So what you're saying is if I can extrapolate, there are a lot of different ways to get your kid to sleep, eat, but don't abuse them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that 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 is what 10 years of education, yeah. like post-education. Oh, man. Parenthood's going to be interesting for you. Um, so I think I think they're kind of more talking towards like the anxiety of all of these yeah. different things that people tell you you have to do, um, but kind of trying to allay that anxiety with saying, actually, there there's a lot of different ways to do all of those things and to go with what you think is best and kind of go with your gut in terms of sleeping patterns, eating, and those meeting those developmental milestones. Yeah, the first time I heard it, that advice there, I interpreted it as you just did, Patricia, that it's speaking to like this really high level of anxiety that can happen after you have a baby that like you're not doing anything right and you literally have no idea what to do with this small human and you're unsure of what you're doing in comparison to everybody else and everything online tells you weird stuff about what to do with your baby, et cetera. And then the longer I listened, the more I thought about it, like Jacob, <laughs> it's way too much school uh, that like, don't put your kids in toxic environments. That's really easy to do to mess up. <laughs> so, so I took it dark. Also, I was glad to hear that Jacob supported me. I felt very <laughs> Uh, in in that case, in that regard, it can be very easy. And as the rest of your excerpt here says, the quote, the quote finishes that the issues your child will have when they are an adult will most likely not be traced back to anything you did in the first year. Uh, false. I think forming uh, the attachment bond is really important. Yeah. You guys are just, you guys are just, just making all of these new parents that are listening to our podcast super <laughs> anxious, man. You're just compounding and adding to it. Like well, I, think I seriously think you guys aren't aren't emotionally or psychologically abusing your kid. Just make sure to love them. Also, I mean, let them sleep. Make sure they eat. You know, however you want to feed them. And it's not lead. Don't feed them lead. <laughs> But but also make sure to love them and give them snuggles. Um, and you're good. It's really hard to mess up. You guys are just catastrophizing this whole entire section. I thought it was going to be a a heart lifting section. All the other what advices we've done have been real intense, and I thought this was going to be lovely. But leave it to you well, two. So, Sarah, good advice or bad advice? Good advice. <laughs> I feel that now. <laughs> no, sorry. Jacob, good advice or bad advice? Good advice with those caveats. <laughs> of course, with caveats, you know, don't abuse your children. <laughs> All right. I shouldn't laugh at that. That's, that's bad. We're horrible people. Next, let your child know you. Bring him or her into your world. And don't be a mystery to your baby. So bring the child to your world, to your workplace, to your other events. 
you know, bring a screaming child to the library, various things. Um, well, I'm going to talk a little bit about one of uh, the families I worked with in therapy. And don't worry, I'm not going to give away any identifying details. But I was working with parents and they had a teenage son who had started to act out his, you know, in, in high school. Um, and, you know, as we kind of went through this process of therapy, he felt really distant from his dad. So I actually kicked mom out of therapy because she was acting as this intermediator between dad and son mm-hmm. and just started having dad and son have conversations around their relationship and what life was like for them. And one time dad told a really um, like personal moving story about some of the difficulties he faced while growing up. And that really helped the son connect with him and see his dad in a different light and really change the trajectory of where this kid was going. So I like this. I think that it's really important to not only have a strong attachment to your kid, but also to let them know you as a person, not just as a parent. You know, I think the times when I've felt closest to my parents, especially as an adult, is when I feel like I can see them as human and not just in these roles as mom or dad. Yep. I agree. I think, um, and sometimes I think it's about sharing stories and relating who you are as a person and or who you developed to be to share that part of you with your kids. But sometimes I also think that there is a good argument to be made about being transparent about your emotional process in the moment, not so much just the stories yeah. and my, who my, what my identity is, but that kids can see so much more about how we're experiencing things emotionally than we're willing to let on and to deny that that's what's going on or to sugarcoat it or to to refuse to talk about those emotions is really can can be really confusing and invalidating and so i think i, agree. Uh, I think being transparent about um, what you're experiencing in the moment with your kid can help them identify what they're experiencing, what they're observing you experience, and then helps develop their emotional language and their social emotional knowledge of themselves so that they really develop that affective piece of themselves. Right. I like that. So not only let your child know you by bringing them bringing them to your physical world, but also into your emotional and psychological process world as well. I think so. I think it's a really like powerful way to develop empathy for, for young kids too, not just when they're yeah. older and think they should have that emotional language for really little kids very, very early on starting to label those yeah, three, four. Yeah, I agree. Start. Yeah. yeah. So for let your child know you, good advice, bad advice. Good advice. Really solid. So last but not least, I'm going to share some advice that someone gave me. So this was a piece of advice that a wonderful nurse named Rose gave me when um, I was leaving the hospital with my first, with my oldest daughter. This is what she told me. People are going to give you a lot of advice. Just say, okay, thank you. And then ignore it. (laughs) I loved it. And I use it all the time. It's kind of meta. It's advice about advice. Yeah. (laughs) Take advice. So it's totally meta. It's totally meta. And it was perfect because it's so Mm -hmm. true. Every... Everyone who has a child, especially some someone who had a child recently, and you have your first child, everybody's going to want to give you advice. Mm-hmm. And it's just, you don't want to hurt their feelings and say, oh, I'm not using that. So she just said, you know, tell them, oh, thank you. And then just ignore it. Yeah. Or like you can it. use it if you like it, but... 
The other thing, the reverse is that I think sometimes as a new parent, people will with like newer or littler kids will ask for your advice. And so on the flip side, I will often say like every kid is totally different. Yeah. And it doesn't, the minute you think you've mastered this kid is the minute they're going to change developmentally. So just be prepared. Like the day you think you have a handle on it is the day that they're about to go through some kind of developmental leap and you will have lost it again. So it doesn't even matter what I tell you. Go with the flow. Your kid's your kid. Yeah. And it's hard to mess it up. It's so hard to mess it up. Um, so what do you guys think on uh, Nurse Rose? Good advice or bad advice? Good advice. Hey, in my experience, you always you always take advice from nurses. Yeah, they, they seem to be the ones that know what's going on the most. It's true. Well, I think that does us for today. So thanks everybody for listening to Attached. Remember to call us, email us, or tweet us about any relationship advice you've received and you're wondering whether to follow it or just pass on it say no thank you we cannot wait to talk about it because you know we will have a good one